So Genesis chapter 2 is our first reading, and then we're going to turn to the last chapter of Revelation. Genesis 2, and we're beginning at verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Turn now to the last chapter, and we're going to read Revelation 22, 1 to 6. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. There will be no need of light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Let's pray as Pastor Paul comes to preach the word to us. Lord, we thank you again for your precious word. We thank you again for the gift of your spirit who leads us into all truth. Empower Pastor Paul that as he opens up your word to us again, that you will speak through him and tune our hearts that we may be responsive to what you want to say to us today. We ask it for the glory of your son, Jesus. Amen. We're really close to the end of Revelation, and uh, I wish we had um, more and more weeks rather than short weeks to finish the book, um, but it has been a great journey. One individual has pointed out that there are 1,189 chapters in the Bible, and all but four of them describe what takes place under the curse. The first two books of the Bible show how God made the world, and it was very good. The last two books of the Bible show us how God will remake the Bible and how it will be very good. Creation as it was, creation as it will be. 
And we are now in the last two chapters of the Bible. Something extraordinary and almost unthinkable has happened. You might recall if we were to go a little bit farther in the book of Revelation that you, or book of Genesis, you come to chapter 3, verse 22. And after man had sinned and judgment had been pronounced upon them, the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. Notice that phrase, he drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. That has been the history of the world. Access to the tree of life denied. So we come to Revelation chapter 22 and we say, what's this? There's Edenic language again. We have a tree of life and we have a river that has the water of life. And we say, what's going on? Has the way back to the tree of life been opened up again? It's evident that it has. It's evident that the New earth is patterned somewhat after the Garden of Eden. But it isn't really, or it isn't only a garden that has been brought forth into the immediate future. It's a new garden that is uh, exponentially greater in its majesty and its glory. This new garden, which is the whole earth, the whole new heaven and new earth, makes the first garden almost nothing. There's no getting around the fact that in the new heaven and earth, the garden that we see there exhibits the fullness that God had always intended to become or come out of the first garden. And so John, as we look at these chapters or these verses in chapter 22, really describes three things, I think, for us. He describes the environment of the new heaven and earth. He describes the people in the new heaven and the earth. And then he describes the nearness of the new heaven and the new earth. Remember, if you've been with us at least for a couple weeks, we have been talking about what is awaiting the people of God. We know the destiny of the followers of the beast. They were consigned to the lake of fire forever and ever. But what of the people of God? Well, we have learned now that they will be part of a new heaven and a new earth. And we find that recorded for us in, in uh, Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 8. But we also find there the description of the people of God who are called a city, but who are also a people that is described in Revelation chapter 21, starting at verse 9 to 22, verse 5. And this is all a description of the new Jerusalem or of the people of God. And so John is finishing that up, or we're finishing that up a little bit this morning. And he begins to describe something of the environment in which we will live in the new heaven and the new earth. And he describes it in an incredible way because he describes it in a, in a way, again, that comes at it from an absence of sin. There is no impact of sin. There is no effect of sin in the new heaven and new earth. So what does that look like? Well, he begins by describing first a river of the water of life. Now, what's the purpose of this river? Well, the, the purpose of the river is described in its name. It is the water of life. And I think the image is important. It's not just a trickle. It's not just a spring, but it is a river of water that gushes out of the throne of God or from the throne of God. 
It's the same river that I think is described in the book of Ezekiel in chapter 27 where the river ushers out of the temple of God and as the river moves farther and farther away from the temple, it gets deeper and deeper and deeper until uh, there's a point at which Ezekiel cannot even cross it because it is too deep. And I think this is a way that John has of describing for us that in the environment of the new heaven and the new earth, there will be sustained life, there will be abundant life, there will be a fullness of life, there won't be just enough of life that God will provide us with an abundance, with a fullness, with an extravagance of everything necessary for eternal life. It's even possible that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit being given to us in fullness forever into eternity. Because as Jesus was talking to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, he talked to her about this water that he had to give to her. And he said there, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying this to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And you pop over to John chapter 7 and you find there Jesus talking on the last day of the feast, on the great day, he stood up and he cried out, if anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given. Whatever this river is, it is an abundance, it is a fullness, it is an extravagance of life from God. Notice its source. Its source flows from the throne of God and from the Lamb. It just makes sense, doesn't it, that all of eternity, our life will be dependent upon God. Our existence will be dependent upon God. All that we need, all that we want, will be provided for us from God. The center of our life, the source of our life, the sustenance of our life will be God himself. Notice its location. It says this river throws down the middle of the street. I think that's a way of John just demonstrating to us the priority, the centrality of the provision of God, of the abundance of God. It's like you go to many cities and they have a town square or they have a main street, which is the center of town. It's the center of the attraction of the town. And I think this is John's way of demonstrating to us that our life or the life-giving river that flows from the throne of God is the center of the new heaven and the new earth. Notice he says, there that it is bright as crystal, talking about the clarity of this water. When John was writing a little bit earlier about the throne of God in chapter 4, he says, before the throne of God, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. We, we talk about a, 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 an ocean being like glass, and it's calm, and it, there's not a ripple on it. And when John pictures that in heaven, I think what he is picturing is the sovereignty of God that controls all the forces in this world. And the sea that is before the throne is flat. It is, it is calm as glass. Now we see something here of the purity of the water that flows from the throne of God. When we are baptized, we are symbolizing the purification of our sins. Nicodemus came to understand that when one is born again, they are born again by water in the Spirit. There is a purifying or a cleansing that comes as we are washed from our sins. David cried out, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. 
I think this is an expression of the complete purifying that will take place into eternity and throughout all eternity as we drink of this water of life. I've been reading a, a book um, which is uh, 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 an historical account of Charles Spurgeon, but is somewhat um, uh, historical fiction. But in there, they describe that as a little boy, um, Charles Spurgeon used to stay with his grandpa because there wasn't enough provision in his own home. And one night, there was a terrible storm that had come into the little town where they lived, and Spurgeon had heard his grandfather calling him downstairs. And as he came downstairs, not knowing what he would see, he noticed that there was a wash tub in the kitchen, and the wash tub was full to the brim with rainwater that had poured off the roof, and it was not running along the top of the doorframe, and it was, it was running along the top of the doorframe, and it was running down the walls like a waterfall. And he writes in confusion and panic. Charles thought, surely his grandfather must be angry about the condition of the house and the water that was pouring in. And his grandfather said to him, Charles, quickly cup your hands. And he showed him how to do it. And he walked over towards this ceramic wash tub. And he asked Charles to come and follow him. And then as they knelt down before the wash tub, his grandfather dipped his hands into the water. And he pulled it up. And he slowly began to drink it. And then he began to guzzle it. And as he closed his eyes, it's like he savored every drop of water. And he said to his little grandson, my, my boy, there is no sweeter tasting water than that which follows straight from heaven. And Charles followed, and with each swallow, he imagined tiny droplets making their way from heaven's river and following through the feathery clouds, and they drank happily as Charles' heart slowly melted into childlike glee. What bliss to taste the sweetness of God, said his father. The, the nourishing purity, the sweet provision of God that is in this water of uh, life, this river that is clear as crystal. As the psalmist said, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Not only is there a river of the water of life that he sees in this new, uh, this new environment, but he says a tree, he sees the tree of life. And on either side, it's on either side of the river. And there's 12 kinds of fruit, one for each uh, month of the year. And I suspect that this is a symbolic way of presenting the complete ongoing provision of God for the people of God into eternity. And that the tree of life maybe could be taken as a collective reference to the multitude of ways in which God will provide for his people. The monthly variety of different fruits suggests bounty for all times. There is always a bountiful harvest for our needs, for our provision as we live into eternity. There will never be times of want. There will never be times of lack. Spiritual and physical nourishment are abundantly supplied for all times. It's an example, I think, of the far-reaching effects into the distant reaches of eternity of the provision of Christ's redeeming blood. Notice he says on this tree are leaves for the healing of the nations. I don't know about you, but I wonder about that. Well, what does that mean? Because there's no sin in heaven. There's, there's going to be no need of, of, of healing that might come as the result of sin. 
But rather, I suspect as I've been wrestling this through in my mind a little bit that as we live in heaven and throughout all eternity, there will be a growing sense of appreciation and a growing sense of acceptance of the incredible diversity of people that God has created throughout this whole history of the world. Because we know that in heaven, part of the redeemed company will be made up of every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages. You see, I think, and this is just me, but, and maybe it's my own heart, but I think we are more prejudiced than we will ever admit. I think there's things within us that look at other people and look at other races and we, we think we're a little bit superior or we think that we're a little bit better. It's, it's, we, we look at them and we think, well, they're primitive. We even say that of people, that they're primitive. But I think that when we get to heaven, there will be this awareness that God will continue to grow in us. We're not all going to be made white in heaven. We're going to be all the people that God has ever made together, and we will be able to appreciate the incredible distinctions that God has made in all the different people and all the different languages that will be, I think, even in the new heaven and the new earth. And it will be almost like a reversal of Babel as we gather together into eternity with all the people that God has made. And there will be a healing in the sense that there will be a deep sense, an abiding appreciation for the vastness of God's imagination and gifting of so many cultures and so many gifts that they have each contributed to glorifying God. A tree of life that has 12 kinds of fruit, one for each month, and leaves that are for the healing of the nation. So there's a river the water of life, there is a tree, um, uh, the tree of life. No longer is there any curse. That's clearly a reference to the curse that was pronounced in the Garden of Eden after the man and woman had sinned. Remember there that God had cursed the ground. And we now live in the midst of that curse. Remember in Romans chapter 8 how Paul there describes the longing of the whole creation to be released from the bondage of the curse. This is another way of John saying that there is no sin in the environment of the new heaven and the new earth because there is no curse. And where does the curse come from? The curse is the result of sin. In Zechariah, he says, All the land from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem, will be changed into a plain. But Jerusalem will be raised up and will remain on its site from the Benjamin gate to the place of the first gate to the corner gate and from the towner of Hanel to the royal wine presses. People will live there and never again will there be a curse of destruction. This new heaven and the new earth will be totally absent of any evidence of sin forever and ever. And so there's no more curse in this heavenly environment. And notice, he says that the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. This is an incredible way of saying now God has fully presenced himself with God's people on this earth. And God is, uh, he says, it will never grow old, our access to the throne of God, our, our ability to come to the throne of God, to talk with God, to interact with God. It will never grow old because God is infinitely appealing and infinitely fascinating. As Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, 7, in the coming ages, notice he doesn't say even age, he says in the coming ages, 
It's his way of describing age after age after age, forevermore into eternity. In the coming ages, God will show the immeasurable riches of his grace. Just stop there for a moment. We will never be able to exhaust the greatness and the magnitude of God. We will never run out of things to be in awe of and things to be in glory of and things to be taken back by and things which will take our breath away. It will never happen because in the coming ages, God will show the immeasurable riches of his grace. And notice this word, in kindness to us in Christ. That there will be forever this awareness as God is on the throne of the immeasurable kindness of God to us in Christ. Do you ever get tired of going into the throne room of God? Do you ever take it for granted that we get to go into the throne room of God every day? I was struck this past week, I was listening to, um, I know it's a radical white ring uh, radio broadcast, but when I'm out in my car, I listen to Lars Larson um, from time to time. And he had a guest on there, some of you may be familiar with the guest, Major Garrett. He's been a reporter for some news agencies in the in America for many, many years, and he's been a correspondent that has been stationed in the White House. And every day he's got to go into the White House and, and, and broadcast the news and interviews people. And Lars asked him at one point, before they started getting into the topic they were talking about, he says to him, does it ever get old going into the White House? And he said, it never gets old. He said, there is a sense of awe every time you step into those hallways and into those rooms and you realize that in that place, decisions have been made for hundreds of years that have impacted not only the history of the United States of America, but the history of the world. He says, I never take it for granted and I never lose my awe. And I thought, we get to go into the throne room of God where decisions have been made that have created this universe where kings and queens have been raised up and set down, where God has determined every issue of my life, I should never, ever lose a sense of awe as I get to go to the throne room of God. Loved ones, the throne room of God is in the midst of this incredible new heavens and new earth. There's a fifth thing that's in the midst there. It says, and uh, this is, you know, wrestle with me. This is how I understand it, but he says, no, Night will be no more, and there will be no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. I find it difficult to take this literally. We read of the church serving God in the new heaven and the new earth day and night. We read of the angels around the throne of God, worshiping him day and night. We read that how in the lake of fire that there will be um, torment of those there day and night. We understand that when the garden was first created and it was good and no sin had ever entered it, that there was night and that God said it was very good. And so I wrestle with understanding that this be taken literally. Rather, I understand night and darkness to be used symbolically here to, to portray fear and evil that often accompany darkness. I see in here a reference to rebellion and spiritual darkness and intellectual darkness that so characterizes the world in which we live today. And so when John says that there is no more night and that there will need no light of 
the lamp or sun. It doesn't mean there is none there. He says they won't need it. Why? Because the fullness of the brightness of God will be forever into eternity. And we will. there are no reasons to fear the night anymore. It will be a restful time. It will be a peaceful time. That we will have perfect knowledge. That we will have the abandonment of sin and rebellion from God. There will be nothing dark about the night. Does that make sense? And so he says, in this new heaven and new earth, there will be nothing that blocks the light of God from our hearts and our minds. Do you ever have those times when you think, oh, it feels like God is just distant. The, the dark is a fearful thing. The dark is a scary thing. I can't get through to God. I think this is John's way of saying that in this new heaven and new earth, there will be not a corner of our minds and our lives that will not be brightly illuminated by the knowledge of God. This is Edenic deja vu in Revelation 22. It's an environment of perfection. It's an environment of sinlessness. It's an environment of God's provision and abundant refreshing. All our needs met for all of eternity again and again and again. Notice one last thing. I thought a lot about this this past week, about how the cherubim had been placed with a, a flaming sword turned every way. There's no way that you could sneak back into the garden. The way to the garden had been blocked. And you know where my mind went? When Jesus said, I am the way. No one comes to the Father but by me. It is through Jesus that we get back to the perfection that God has always wanted for us. So that's the environment. What about the people of the new heaven and the new earth? I'm going to talk five times as fast now. <laughs> I just, I'm stunned by this stuff. The first thing he says there is that his servants will worship him. Does that kind of bother you? You know, you think, well, into eternity I'm going to worship God? I think that what John is saying, and I, I love this, is because he's saying we will always be in awe of God. We will always see our dependence upon God. We will always find our satisfaction in God. There will never any longer be any tug, any temptation to find our satisfaction in anything or anyone else. We will be fully satisfied in God. I'm taken back in my own life how easily I am allured into idolatry. And John himself, for a second time, when he sees this great vision, what does he do? He falls down because he wants to worship the angel. And the angel says to him, you must not do that. Loved ones, we need to place those words in our forehead. We need to put those words on our TVs. We need to put those words on our bank accounts. We need to put those words on, on the things that we seek for pleasure. There's things that are really good that God has provided for so much, but they should never, ever be worshipped by us. See, we constantly find ways in our hearts to, to worship other things. I think as John Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories. They're constantly producing new ways to draw us into false worship whether it's sex or pleasure or money or food or work or family or holidays or hobbies, I meant to say. 
holidays too. But in another place, John ended his book, Beloved, keep yourselves from idols. Let the words of the angel resonate in your heart this week. You must not do that. You see, in the new heaven and new earth, we will worship God and God alone. He will fully satisfy us. He will fully attract us. There will never anymore be any pull because there's no more sin in heaven. They will see his face. I've often heard people say, I can't wait to get to heaven because I want to see so-and-so. I don't say this as a criticism because I've probably said it myself or not said it myself, but I don't think I've ever, ever heard anyone say, I can't wait to get to heaven because I want to see God face to face. But we will, and maybe you have, and maybe I just haven't heard it, but it says we will see him face to face. Do you see what's taking place here? Like all through the history of the world after the garden, we have been barred from a face to face contact with God. We have been barred from that intimacy and that fellowship that comes from seeing him face to face. In John, Jesus says to us, no one has ever seen God. Timothy reminds us that he was blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. Moses asked to see God, but God said to him, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. See, we live with that inability. However much we might want to say, I just want to see your face, God. I just want to sit across the table from you in Starbucks and have a conversation. We cannot see God face to face because there is too much sin in us. But there's a transition that's slowly taking place. John descri or Paul describes it this way, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed in the same image from one degree to another. There's a transformation that is taking place to us as sin is removed from us and as we become more and more like our son. And yet there is coming a day where we will experience unparalleled eternal intimacy with God. He says, behold, beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. There's a text that we read a lot in the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I think Jesus is looking ahead to the, the, the new heaven and the new earth when we will see God, but what's required? Purity of heart. And then in Hebrews, it says, without holiness, no one will see God. You see what John is saying here? He's saying that there is coming a day when we will be pure. There is coming a day when we will be holy. And as a result of that, we will be able to see God face to face. Is this a longing of your heart? Because John says everyone who has this hope purifies themselves. They will belong to God. What an amazing statement this is. This is a symbolic way of saying that God's name will be written on all of our foreheads. We've looked at this from Revelation chapter 7. We looked back at it, Revelation chapter 3, in the church in Philadelphia. This is God's way of stamping his ownership on us, of his way of saying, you belong to me. You are mine, and I will never, ever let you go. Nothing will ever harm you. Nothing and no one will ever snatch you out of my hand. I've branded you with my name. Nothing can ever separate you from my love. I have engraved you on the 
the palm of my hands. I have written my name on your forehead. You are eternally mine. What an incredible reality for us who will spend eternity in the new heaven and earth. They will reign with him. We will reign with him in heaven above. Those who have been redeemed by Christ will be part of a kingdom and we will reign with God. Just like in the first garden, man had dominion over all the earth and had been given the ruling or the task of ruling creation, as David says in Psalm 8. So in the new heaven and new earth, we will reign with God. What an incredible reality for the people of God. We will worship God. We will see God face to face. We will be sealed by God's name. We will reign with God. And let me just touch on the last point really quickly. The nearness of the new heaven and the new earth. You may have noticed, if you've been following with us and reading the book of Revelation from time to time, that the book begins and ends with similar sort of statements or declarations. In Revelation chapter 1, 1, these things are written for you about things which must soon take place. Now in Revelation verse 22, verse 6, that he might show his servants what must soon take place. There is an urgency here. And then in, in, in uh, Revelation 1, 7, behold, he is coming on the clouds. And then in Revelation 22, three times, behold, I am coming soon. And then in Revelation 1, 3, the time is near. And in Revelation 22, 10, the time is near. There is a nearness to the coming of the Lord. And we are meant to feel it. And we are meant to be aware of it. And we need to feel the force of the many exhortations that are throughout the New Testament. That exhortations about staying awake and being ready for and watching for the coming of the Lord. And it certainly is biblical to maintain that there are certain events that have yet to occur before the coming of the Lord, and yet we can still maintain a doctrine of the nearness of the coming of Christ. Scriptures speak of the time before Christ's coming during which we will be able to know that the time is near. Read Matthew 24, where again and again it says, these things will happen. When you see these things happening, know that the time of the Lord is near. Scriptures speak in the perfect tense of the fact that the coming of the Lord is near. Scriptures talk that the day of the Lord is drawing near or it's approaching. Scripture talks about the uh, coming of the Lord in comparative terms that it is nearer today than it was a week ago. And so we might think of it in these kind of terms. We might speak of a husband who has gone away on a business trip and after a long time they're coming home and their, their return is imminent in the sense of nearness. And so we might say, well, he's coming home at the end of the month. His, his coming is drawing near. We might say, well, he called and his business trip is over and he's coming home. His return is really near. Now we're heading to the airport in Victoria to pick him up. His return is now near. His return is nearer today than it was a week ago. You see, we can speak about the nearness of God in a sense that it is really close at hand. Jesus tells us that the time is near. And so we need to understand there's no time to dilly-dally. There's no time to mess around. There's no time to say, well, I'll deal with that later. The writer of Hebrews says, and let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do. 
but encourage one another, especially now that the day of the Lord is drawing near. You understand that? I think that when we treat the company of the people of the Lord lightly, we lose out on the ever-constant reminder that the day of the Lord is drawing near. That when we sing and when we pray, there is a reminder that takes us away from our work and from our family and from our friends and, and all of that as we gather together and we, for a few minutes, we think about Christ and we think about heaven and we think about eternal things. And when we neglect gathering together, we lose out on the reminder that the day of the Lord is drawing near. So loved ones, the new heaven and the new earth is an incredible environment free of sin. The new heaven and the new earth is an incredible reality for those of us who will spend eternity there. And the new heaven and the new earth is drawing near. It is just around the corner. Look up, for your redemption draweth nigh. Father, we thank you for your word today. For the glorious picture that John is painting for us of what awaits us in the new heaven and the new earth. Lord, help these truths to settle into our hearts and minds even this week. Help us to reflect on the great hope that is near for all of us who are in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.